Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to First Move this Thursday and a lot of news and some newsmakers to get to this hour as always, including desperate hours. A massive search operation continuing in the Atlantic for the missing Titan submersible. More banging noises have been detected, but the five people on board may have little oxygen left. A live report on the latest coming right up. Also, Modi on the move. The Biden administration pulling out all the stops as it welcomes India's prime minister to the White House in the next hour. Modi set to address a joint session of Congress later Thursday as well. The world's largest democracy, India, is viewed as a strategically important counterbalance to China's influence across Asia and beyond. Plus, a financing flood vital climate discussions taking place in Paris, among them ways to unlock climate cash for poorer nations aiming to ramp up clean energy investment. Former U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, now the U.S. President's special climate envoy, will join us live to discuss those talks. Meanwhile, a cooler climate for now on Wall Street. U.S. stocks set for a fourth day of losses as Fed Chair Jerome Powell heads to the Senate for more testimony on the economy. Powell delivering a hawkish message on rate hikes on Wednesday. Europe also, as you can see, a sea of red there. The Bank of England taking many by surprise and raising interest rates by a half a percentage point after a dreadful UK inflation print. They have to get that under control and an enormous and... I'd call it predictable policy U-turn now from the Turkish Central Bank. It just hiked interest rates by a whopping six and a half percentage points. OK, let's get right to our top story today and more ships joining the search for the missing submersible in the Atlantic, including the U.S. Navy's deep ocean salvage system. Now, this has the capability of retrieving objects below the depth even of that Titanic wreckage. Paula Newton has the latest. When you're in the middle of a search and rescue case, you always have hope. While hope is running out against a dwindling oxygen supply. Very confident that these banging noises come from the submersible. It also rests on the indistinct banging noise detected by sonar. The noises were heard by a Canadian P3. The U.S. Coast Guard has disclosed that noises were picked up by sonar Tuesday and Wednesday during the search following the deployment of a sonar buoy by a Canadian aircraft. I can't tell you what the noises are, but what I can tell you is, and I think this is the most important point, we're searching where the noises are, and that's all we can do at this point. Acoustic information sent to the U.S. Navy has so far been inconclusive. We are very aware of the time sensitivity around this mission. The search area has expanded to twice the size of Connecticut and up to two and a half miles deep, with more ships and aircraft arriving today to join the around-the-clock aerial and below-the-surface search. We need to go full speed, uh, regardless of what that time is, uh, and, and find that submarine. The sub was en route to explore the Titanic wreckage on Sunday, but lost communication 
about one hour and 45 minutes into its descent. Five passengers were on board, including Ocean Gate founder and CEO Stockton Rush, who is now facing criticism for the engineering of the sub. You know, I've broken some rules to make this. I think I've broken them with, with logic and good engineering behind me, the carbon fiber and titanium. There's a rule you don't do that. Well, I did. Two former employees separately raised safety concerns about the thickness and integrity of the submersible's hull. One employee was fired. He sued for wrongful termination. The other resigned. The lawsuit was settled out of court, and OceanGate says it conducted further testing on the sub. And Paula joins us now. Paula, those banging noises, I think, and the continued escalation of the scale of this search and those that are joining to help providing really needed hope, I think. But the fear, of course, on the other side is dwindling oxygen supplies. Yeah, I mean, look, when we talk about the oxygen supply, it was an estimate, right? It was not precise. The great thing there is that Given the expertise on board that's submergible, they will hopefully found a way to try and salvage as much uh, oxygen as they can. What is happening today, Julia, though, is a day unlike any other, unprecedented in the last four. Why? Because they have more ships on the surface, they have more planes in the air, and crucially, uh, the U.S. Coast Guard says that a re another remote vehicle is now on the ocean floor, very close to the vicinity where the submersible was supposed to be uh, exploring that Titanic wreck. And quite frankly, it is in the next few hours, Julia, where likely the best hope remains to find the five passengers alive uh, and perhaps to more easily be able to bring that submergible to the sea surface. Remember that people talk about salvage op operations. This submarine itself was supposed to have several ways to be able to reach the surface and perhaps we'll know more about that and whether or not that can actually become a reality because as we've discussed trying to re retrieve a sub like this a mini sub like this uh, as many as more than two miles uh, from the ocean floor is quite a difficult task Julia. yeah we keep our fingers crossed and um, praying for, for good news paula newton there thank you and rolling out the red carpet, President Biden welcoming Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi at the White House for a state visit. The two leaders are expected to unveil a slew of trade agreements, including India's purchase of American-made drones and a jet engine manufacturing partnership. Modi has also agreed to participate in a joint press conference after some lengthy and delicate negotiations. Arlet Sines joins us now on this. Arlet, a very important strategic relationship, a counterbalance perhaps to China in Asia and around the world in terms of their influence. What does President Biden hope to get from this meeting? Well, President Biden is really navigating a fraught situation in regards to India. As it's been discussed, there have been concerns about uh, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi's uh, human rights records, also India's kind of drift towards authoritarianism. But the White House and President Biden are ultimately calculating that India is a high-stakes player that they need to cultivate a deeper relationship with, especially when you think about the geopolitical landscape in regards to Russia and also China. So that is why, uh, even as the president is facing criticism for hosting this lavish affair here at the White House, that is why they have decided to host Modi for this state visit. Now, in just about an hour, he will have this official arrival ceremony, which will be followed by Oval Office meetings. He's also set to address Congress. And then it's all capped off by uh, a lavish state dinner this evening that even includes a chef who built um, a 
menu to accommodate Modi's vegetarian diet. But there are expected to be some key agreements between the two leaders today when it comes to defense and technology areas. That includes India is expected to purchase some drones, as well as uh, there is an agreement that GE will manufacture engines for Indian military aircraft in India. So those are some of the items that they're expected to highlight today, along with some investments in semiconductor manufacturing in India. But perhaps the most closely watched moment of the day will come in the early afternoon, just after the Oval Office meetings, when uh, the two leaders will stand before the press to make remarks and take questions. Uh, it was not known until just yesterday whether there would be an opportunity to pose questions to the two leaders. We're told that there were very lengthy and delicate negotiations behind the scenes, with the Indian officials initially balking at the White House request to hold a news conference. Uh, it is very rare for Modi to take uh, questions from the press. There have been uh, concerns raised about his targeting of press freedoms as well. So many eyes will be on that uh, press conference. Uh, typically, these state visits have two questions from each side. Uh, today's will only feature one question uh, from each side, but it does speak to the White House's uh, desire to ensure that reporters are able to ask those questions of Modi today. Now, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, uh, said heading into this visit that the president does not shy away Away from raising concerns about human rights and democracy, that he is expected to do so in public and in private today. We will see how public the president might be with those pronunciations. But it does come as the U.S. is trying to bolster this relationship with a, a partner that they really will think will be an ally heading in to, for the next decades to come. And if you think of areas like defense and space and technology and in their efforts to counter China's growing influence in the region. Certainly. And uh, I think to your point, too, I'm sure uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi is going to have his own concerns to raise with the United mm. States, too, for a bit of yeah. balance as well, too, can play at that game. Um, we shall see. The choreography around that press conference will be interesting to watch. Arlette Sines, thank you for that. Thank you. OK, straight ahead, a new global lending summit kicking off in Paris to address how best to financially support poorer nations facing threats from climate change. U.S. Climate Envoy Secretary John Kerry joins us after this to discuss. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Welcome back to First Move. Last month, we learned from the International Energy Agency that investment in clean energy is now significantly outpacing investment in fossil fuels. But as the IEA's top man told us, the scales need to tip much further towards renewables. And around 90% of the spending is currently being done by richer nations and by China. What's needed is some kind of global financing pact, perhaps, to ramp up investment in poorer parts of the world, which need support to mitigate and adapt to the climate crisis while ensuring they also have access to cleaner energy in the future. Well, right now, more than 100 heads of state and government leaders, policymakers and institutions, including the UN, the IMF and the World Bank, are meeting in Paris to discuss just that. And immersed in these critical discussions is Secretary John Kerry, the US Special Presidential Envoy for Climate. And I'm very pleased to say he joins us now. Secretary Kerry, fantastic to have you on the show, sir. Thank you for your time. These are pivotal talks, not just for building momentum into COP28, but as you always said and have said to me in the past, what's key here is money, money, money. What concrete proposals can come from these talks? Well, uh, Julia, thank you very much for spending a minute with me. I I am uh, among those here who are convinced that uh, we can summon a great deal more capital to the table in order to speed up the transition to move away from unabated fossil fuel burning. That is to say, you're not capturing the emissions. But, but we have to change the structure of how we've approached this. And so there's a really good discussion taking place here today, thanks to President Emmanuel Macron, who brought us all together to figure out how do we deploy the literally trillions of dollars that are held by various funds around the world who do investing around the world. And what people are coming to realize is there are huge good investment opportunities in putting that money into clean energy, new technology, solar, wind, uh, hydrogen, battery storage, carbon capture. There are any number of initiatives now which are attracted more than a trillion dollars of investment. But we are also being told by the International Energy Agency that we need to ramp up to about a trillion something per year for the next four years or seven years. That is why we're having this meeting here uh, and people are talking about new ways of trying to put countries together with philanthropy, together with the public sector, together with the private sector, so that we leverage very large amounts of money that will speed up the transition important in the discussion over who pays what to whom, you're pointing out that we have billions, trillions of dollars around the world that's managed by sovereign wealth funds. These are nation states, but it's private money that's already being invested in areas like the global south and in emerging market nations. What we need to be able to do is unlock more of that because these guys have the power to say to those that they invest in, disclose more in terms of what your carbon footprint is and perhaps do more to tackle it. This is part of it too, Secretary Kerry, surely. Oh, absolutely. And as President Macron said today very directly to people, if they're not going to step up voluntarily to be part of a process, uh, then they're going to find that we're living in a world where there's a greater amount of regulation because governments will be left no choice but to protect their citizens. I just had an event uh, yesterday in Brussels with Jens Stoltenberg, the head of uh, NATO, 
the Director General of NATO and with Franz Timmermans, the Vice uh, President of the EU. And they focused exclusively on how the climate crisis is a security crisis. It's a personal, uh, physical security challenge for people in various parts of the world. It's an energy security challenge. It's a health security, food security. All of these things come together. And as these droughts persist, as the weather gets hotter and you can't grow things where you live, people are going to move from where they live. And the pressures on migration will grow significantly. So the, there's politics in this too. And it's urgent for everybody to understand that if you don't want chaos, if you don't want uh, things unfolding in terms of the social structure and the threats that are raised by the crisis, then you've got to move aggressively and proactively to deal with it. I think there's a more serious conversation here than I've seen in recent years. And I think President Macron is really to be credited with stepping up, feeling this moment, seeing the urgency of what we need to do, and calling on people to do it. I'm yeah. also, a lot of us are excited, Julia, because there's a lot of money to actually be made in the investing, in these new technologies and new opportunities. So this is a, a two-way street, if you will, and I think more people are beginning to realize that. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, and, and to your point, this is not about charitable giving. This is about investment opportunity, too, which is a crucial part of, of, of the discussions. And I know you and I were talking um, just a few months ago about perhaps changing the business model of institutions like the United Nations, uh, sorry, not the United Nations, the IMF and the World right. Bank to allow them perhaps to take a first loss piece to leverage up the cash that they're controlling too in order to be able to invest. How far ahead are those kind of discussions? Because I know many of the um, leaders of those institutions are uh, present for these talks too. Well, let me, let me give you an example. The new, the new president of the World Bank, uh, Ajay Manga, is here and he just made an announcement that the World Bank is now going to provide debt relief to countries that are hit by some of these major storms so that they have the ability to be able to respond to the storm and to rebuild. Uh, and that is a unique, I mean, that's a really important step forward. But all, all the development banks are here. Uh, the private sector, as you mentioned, is here. So yes, there are people here who have a fiduciary responsibility to make money for their clients. But they're also going to find, as we go forward, that if they ignore knowable risks, foreseeable risks, and just go in and put people's money on the line without regard to the impact of climate crisis, they're also going to have a problem. So I think what's happening is people are realizing this is a new world. This is a new set of challenges for the marketplace, a new set of challenges for governments. And by the way, there are philanthropies here. There are philanthropies here that can invest what we call first risk money. They can be at the front end of the deal. They can take, if, if there were a problem, they would take the first loss. And that gives uh, other investors a great deal of comfort. It de-risks. And, right. and we're trying to figure out ways in which we can de-risk on a larger scale. Yeah, de-risking, leveraging money, but everybody being around the table to, to do this the best way we can. And again, we'll reiterate, there's money to be made in this process too. This is not about just charitable giving. Um, as you and I have also discussed in the past, we're not fixing this crisis, even tackling it best if we're not doing so in line with big nations like India, for example, like China. Can I ask you in light of um, the recent trip 
by um, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, to Beijing and subsequent discussions of language with President Biden and President Xi, whether we're in a stronger position today than we were or not versus two weeks ago even? I certainly hope we are in a stronger place. Uh, I can't you know, adjudicate that, but I'm hoping that we are, obviously. But I think that we're moving forward in a lot of ways. I had a very good conversation with my Chinese counterpart just a few days ago. Uh, we exchanged thoughts about uh, when a visit might be appropriate, but also we talked about what they're doing, what we're doing, how we can mesh those together. China has actually uh, deployed a remarkable amount of renewable energy, way ahead of all the other nations put together, including us. But China also has a lot of coal plants and coal dependency, and their emissions are higher. And obviously, we want to work with China to try to reduce that impact, just as we are working on it here at home, which we are doing. So there's a lot of work to be done. Here's the bottom line. The world will benefit if China and the United States can work together on this. President Biden has said he believes this is not a bilateral issue. It's a universal threat to humankind. And President Xi has said he believes this ought to be treated as a separate issue. And the Chinese have reiterated that recently. So my hope is that we can now get together, do the things necessary to build confidence in the relationship, begin to change the dynamics of the relationship, and obviously, yes, work through some difficult issues that exist, but also both of us step up as the two largest economies in the world, the two largest emitters of greenhouse gas pollution. We really do have to join together to make sure the world can meet the target of holding the Earth's temperature increase to 1.5 degrees. That's a tough target, and it's going to take every effort by all nations to get there. The United States, again, as we've discussed, has certainly made a huge step in the right direction with the Inflation Reduction Act, um, the enormous climate deal um, that was agreed on a, a bipartisan basis. Um, it's so powerful, I think, that I've had many discussions with um, both European leaders, but also businesses in Europe saying, we simply can't compete. And as good as it is for the planet, um, it poses a whole new set of challenges. Secretary Kerry, how are discussions going on perhaps adjusting that with a view to um, the Europeans being perhaps a little politely irate about their ability to match the sheer scale and power of what the US has done? Well, as I said, uh, I was just in Brussels. I met with the vice president of the EU uh, and the president of the, of the uh, council. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the, the, the president of the commission, has said publicly that she believes we can both work together with respect to the IRA in ways that don't require us to compete in any harmful way whatsoever. Uh, we need to help each other. And I think there are many benefits that will come out of the IRA that Europe and other parts of the world will benefit from. Hopefully, new technologies that can be deployed, cheaper ways of reducing emissions and making this transition. And we look on uh, the EU as really critical partners in this. They have set ambitious targets. They're moving towards those targets. Germany is almost at 50-some percent renewable today, moving to 80 percent renewable. Other countries in Europe are doing exceptionally well. So I, I'm very confident that we're going to find a common ground here. Moreover, uh, Europe also, we've encouraged 
to do the same thing, invest, push this curve of innovation and creativity, because that's how we're going to get through this crisis. And we're very, very hopeful that uh, uh, we'll work through any kinks in the process uh, on the way to that uh, uh, vision of cooperation. I want to circle back and just end where we began, which was on the talk of the sheer financial power that we're talking about with sovereign wealth funds being invested in, in pushing, promoting and, and finding good returns in this sphere and in renewable energy in particular. And, and you and I also met at the back end of last year with the One Planet Sovereign Wealth Fund um, organization, the network that I know you and President Macron promote. Um, I walked away thrilled about the potential that this has for galvanizing energy support and money. Would you agree, Secretary Kerry, that as big as the challenge is, we're sort of heading in the right direction and pulling the right people together to make change? Julia, I have to say that in the years that I've been in this, I have never seen so many private sector folks coming to the table. We have never had $37 trillion of assets, either owned or under management, sitting at one table with uh, President Macron this morning, where there was a discussion about how they can actually accelerate this process and, and, and answer their concerns about uh, risk and so forth. Uh, we have to remember, some of these funds are pension funds, and there are pensioners in one country or another, including ours, who rely on some return of that investment to be able to retire comfortably. So there are certain limits of risk that can be taken. Other funds don't have that kind of money, uh, the, the pension money with the same fiduciary level, but they all, but they have to, so, you know, they compete for clients. And if their clients say, no, I want to make X amount of money, uh, it's difficult. But still, this is a place where reasonable returns on investment can be made, will be made, are being made even today. There's a lot of space here for those trillions of dollars to begin to invest and go to work. And, and here's what's important. No government in the world has enough money to make this transition happen. The only way it happens is by bringing the private sector to the table. It just can't happen fast enough. The scientists have told us we've got to reach a 45 to 50 percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, seven years from now. The only way we get there and hold the Earth's temperature increase to that 1.5 degrees or close to that is by getting everybody at the table, moving to these investments, de-risking in countries, and I believe uh, this is a really different moment in this journey with respect to the climate crisis. How to say clean up or you don't get my money, which I always find um, quite fascinating leverage. Um, Secretary John Kerry, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, great to get the insights from those talks. Thank you. Okay, let's move on. Former US President Barack Obama, who appointed John Kerry, in fact, as US Secretary of State back in 2012 sat down with our Christiane Amanpour for an exclusive in-depth interview focusing on the current state of democracy around the world. The former president saying a lot of work must be done to regain the confidence and trust of the American people in the democratic process in the United States. Listen in. Our existing democratic institutions are creaky and we're, we're going to have to reform them. So let's ask about the the creaky or not institutions in the United States. Yeah. The spectacle of a former president being uh, federally indicted, mm -hmm. 
How is the rest of the world, the democratic world, maybe even the non-democratic world, meant to interpret that indictment and indeed the fact that a federal indictee is running, is able to run for the highest office in the land, maybe even the world? Uh, it's less than ideal, right? But uh, the fact that uh, we have a former president who uh, is having to answer uh, to charges brought by prosecutors does uphold the basic notion that nobody's above the law. Uh, and the allegations will now be sorted out uh, through a, a, a court process. Uh, and I, th I, I'm, I think I'm more concerned when it comes to the United States with the fact that not just one particular individual is you know, uh, being accused of... of uh, undermining existing laws, but that more broadly we've seen, uh, whether it's through the gerrymandering of districts, whether it's, uh, you know, trying to silence critics uh, through uh, changes in legislative process, whether it's um, attempts to uh, intimidate the press, uh, a strand of anti-democratic sentiment that, uh, you know, we've seen in, in the United States. It, it's something that is right now most prominent in the, in the Republican Party, but I don't think it's um, uh, something that uh, is unique to one party. I think th there is a, a less tolerance for ideas that don't um, suit us. And it's sort of the habits of, of a free and open exchange of ideas and the idea that um, you know, we all agree to the rules of the game and even if the outcomes aren't always the ones we like, we still abide by those rules. I think that's weakened uh, since I left office and uh, we're going to need to strengthen them again. And you can watch Christian Amanpour's complete interview with former U.S. President Barack Obama right here on CNN. The exclusive interview airs Thursday at 10 p.m. in New York and again on Friday at 6 p.m. in London. Welcome back to First Move and a return to our top story, the search for the missing submersible entering a dire stage in the North Atlantic. It's feared the five people on board may have limited oxygen left, though there have been some signs to provide hope. More banging sounds were again detected on Wednesday. Miguel Marquez joins us now. Miguel, reasons for optimism, the banging noises, and we do know that the search now is focused around the area that they believe those noises were coming from. Yeah, so several things happening now. That window mm. of time is closing because they are concerned about oxygen. Uh, and there's a quickening of all of the gear getting into place at the right time as well, or, or as quickly as possible. There are two ROVs, one now a, that's a remote operated vehicle, one now on the surface near where they think maybe it could be, uh, another one in the water and headed down that way. Um, those noises that they heard that were first described as banging, now the U.S. Coast Guard saying, well, we're not sure they was banging, but it, it sounded like it was man-made of some sort. So it happened on Tuesday, then it happened again yesterday. And that's the point where they are focused on right now. They believe those sounds, if anything, would lead them to uh, individuals who are alive on that submersible. Um, on the oxygen side of it, while they gave them 96 hours for five people on that particular submersible, people that 
know that sub, know the people on it, in particular P.H. Narjolet, this very experienced oceanographer, they say that his first instinct would have been to conserve oxygen, so keeping everybody very calm on, on board there, sleeping if necessary, and basically trying to conserve oxygen for a much longer period. Search and rescue still considers this very much a search and rescue. And it's my sense, just hearing them, talking to them, getting a sense of what they're doing and, and this urgency which with they're acting right now is that they will treat it as a search and rescue until they can definitively say that there is no hope in finding them alive. Julia? Yeah. That search and rescue mission will continue. Miguel, great to have your expertise there. Thank you. Miguel Marquez. And Western officials tell CNN that the early stages of Ukraine's counteroffensive is bringing less success than expected and Russian forces are showing more competence. Kyiv says its slow-grinding campaign is achieving, though, notable success in the south. CNN's Ben Weidman went to a village recently liberated by Ukrainian forces, although it's still under fire from the Russians. I have to warn you, some images in Ben's report are pretty distressing. An unknown Russian soldier lost his life here on a dirt road in the small village of Neskuchny. He was killed in Ukraine's counteroffensive, which has, at best so far, put a small dent in Russian lines, hardly the turning point so many had hoped for. This is one of the villages that was liberated by the Ukrainians, this one on the 10th of June. And clearly the Russians were in a hurry. They left behind this blood-soaked stretcher. It's still too dangerous for civilians to return to these once tranquil farming communities. And there isn't much left for them to return to. The mortar crew of the 35th Ukrainian Marine Brigade has moved into a house recently vacated by Russian troops. This afternoon, they're busy piling up newly arrived American-made shells. Far better than the old Soviet ammunition, says Andri. Amazing. They're just great, he says. They hit the bullseye, my favorite. Throughout the day, shelling echoes around them. The Russians may have left the village, yet they're still nearby. Yuri's mortar training in Britain didn't prepare him for the front. This is only his third day in the line of fire. There are moments when I want to hide, he says, but I have to stay put and wait. Unit Commander Oleksandr takes coordinates from headquarters. His men make the adjustments and prepare the rounds. They're firing these rounds at Russian lines, which are four kilometers or two and a half miles away. It's going to be a long, hot summer. Ben Wigman, CNN, on Ukraine's southern front. Okay, coming up after the break, another very special guest joining First Move. Watch this. Hey guys, Bear Grylls here. The British adventurer turning his attention from the outdoors to artificial intelligence and training young people in digital survival skills. We're going to be talking to him next.
The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move. My next guest is one of the most recognized faces in the world of survival and outdoor adventure. He spent three years as a soldier in the UK Special Forces. He was one of the youngest people ever to climb Everest, and he's the first ever chief ambassador to 55 million scouts worldwide. Bear Grylls is warning young people, too, that they need more help to survive working life. The star of Running Wild says some do not possess the skills to stop their jobs from being taken over by technology like AI or automation. His warning about digital challenges comes as employers highlight a shortage of traditional life skills, such as teamwork, leadership and emotional resilience. Bear's trying to address the problem in his own way with an AI-driven education portal called Mission Seeker, which aims to help younger people improve their media literacy and more. And I'm pleased to say he joins us now. Bear, it is a huge honor to have you on the show. Um, We've got much to discuss, I know, but given what your experiences, your survival skills. I just wanted to get your thoughts at this moment on the rescue mission that's taking place at this Mm. moment for the Titan submersible. Your thoughts at this moment. Yeah, gosh, this is a heartbreaking situation, Mm. a race against time. I mean, technically the time of oxygen has run out now. That was about an hour ago. You know, but trying to operate at those sort of extreme depths is incredibly challenging. Uh, you know, you, you can't imagine what those guys have gone through or going through. And you can only only hope and pray that uh, now they've got ROVs down there, that first of all, first of all they've got to locate it, uh, but then they've got to retrieve it. And it's where, as you said, where to search and rescue become, search and recover. Uh, I mean, part of me kind of thinks if the oxygen has run out, you kind of wonder whether you know, would it have been better just to have had a catastrophic auction failure early on, you know, or a breach in that pressure. So any death was fast. You know, you can't imagine what they would have had to endure. That wasn't the case over the last few days. Uh, but I do think while, while there's no news, there's always hope, you know, maybe yeah. they've managed to make their slide last longer than anticipated, longer than those 90 hours. Uh, I think the reality though, is that, um, it's prob- it probably had a ca- either had a catastrophic failure or it got trapped. You know, I think those are two things. It had good redundancy in it for getting back to the surface and if it didn't have communications and stuff. So it seems that one of those things is what's happened. But as you say, trying to locate it is the first challenge. And that is a serious challenge, you know, the, the strengths of the sea currents on the seabed. So um, hope and prayers are still going up. Yeah, I think um, to your point, you're sort of speculating, as we all have been over the past few days, on what may have happened or what might have happened. Um, But to your point about the hope, there are those on board that have the kind of skills that you have, be it one that's got experience deep sea diving, they understand perhaps the conditions, what they can do to preserve oxygen. Does that also provide some degree of hope too? They they know how to operate in these extreme conditions as as unbearable as, as it might be. 
Well, to be honest, that, that's a limited, it's a limited hope. The problem with that sub mm. is once you're inside it, you're at the you have no control. You know, you can't get out. You're you're at the mercy of, you know, of those oxygen systems work and and not getting trapped. So yes, having survival skills is maybe going to help you stay positive and as much as you can in a, in a horror situation. But really, you're very powerless in that thing. That's why it's such a nightmare scenario to put yourself in unless you're really certain of redundancies in place. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's a nightmare situation. My <laughs> wife goes, oh my God, that's a, a nightmare, trapped in dark places and stuff. So, um, yes. I'm sure. And watching you do extreme things as well is a, a nightmare for her too. Um, where the family, friends, everyone involved, we pray for the best and we pray for a miracle. Um, let's move on and talk about talking to children and this is something I feel very strongly about too, digital survival skills, whether it's being online, media, understanding fake news. Bear, you're a father. Tell me why you got involved with this and why this resonates for you. Well, I think, as you know, you and me are not alone as somebody mm. who has uh, you know, visibility, but also concerns of the amount of misinformation for young people out there. And, you know, we never had this growing up. You know, kids now have... It's not like a, a wave of information. It's a tsunami of information coming at them and all the time, every day, pressures and the, the anxiety and the stress that that brings as well. And I think at the heart of so much of that is trying to have a dis discernible, effective way of working out what is real, what is fake news, what is generated, what is, what is real. And, uh, and so we're trying to do something that speaks to that, try and help young people be... Uh, digital literate so to speak i think it's a modern day survival skill it really is you know we all have we know the sort of survival skills we're talking about but actually i think as a survivor you've got to adapt you've got to innovate and if you're going to be relevant for young people fighting this battle today you've got to try and do something that empowers them to work out what is real news and what is fake news what is misinformation where does critical thinking and um and logic the basic logic test come in too, because it, it would be great if we could identify fake news and, and fake content and AI, I think is only going to make that worse. And we're already realizing that. But what kind of skills can you give children beyond that, I think, to be able to um, ask questions of themselves and what they're reading and what they're doing? Because this is key to not just this, but life and who you meet and how you deal with people too. Yeah, I think first you've got to resource kids with the with effective tools. You know, young yeah. people are much smarter than sometimes we <laughs> might imagine. I think yes. they are often much savvier <laughs> than we might imagine. But at the yeah. same time, you've got to resource them with effective tools that allow them to be able to decipher what is real and what isn't real. And that's what uh, I loved about this company, Seeker, because it was using AI uh, to help kind of source re the reliability to score the reliability of what people are viewing or reading. Uh, so we partnered with them to set up something that's targeted for young people to empower them. Uh, it's called missionseeker.com. And it's all about setting uh, fun, adventurous, environmental, humanitarian challenges for young people uh, to get out there, film some of these missions themselves and build this community where they can then be part of the seeker community of trying to help young kids to uh, understand how to be digitally literate uh, in a modern world. Yeah, new forms of resilience, which I love. Um, I have to ask you as well, while I have you, um, on a completely random story today, um, a supposed 
potential offer, at least, of a cage fight between Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, and Mark Zuckerberg um, of Facebook fame. Um, two of the world's richest, most powerful men. Um, a cage fight. Fair? Take a bet on who might win this? Oh, wow. I, I have no words. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think I think the the only answer is no words. You know, <laughs> I mean the mind the mind truly boggles, doesn't it? Um, it probably in so well many ways. Good, it probably <laughs> that's super successful. Count me out. <laughs> Perhaps they could feature though. I did have a thought in your next series of Running Wild with Bear Grylls. I know season two is almost out, and you have some great faces: Bradley Cooper, Rita Ora, Benedict Cumberbatch. You can talk to me about that. You can also talk about the prospects, perhaps, of um, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg coming on with you and you well, teaching listen, them some listen. real survival skills. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. You should be the booker, really. But no, there you're you right. It's about I'm not sure would, about my success. Both, <laughs> <laughs> they would both be great well guests. I think they've got amazing stories and, and everyone's yeah. interested in them. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm not sure the cage is necessarily the place to express that for themselves. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Listen, <laughs> for I'm these always, two, <laughs> I'm always humbled by. <laughs> I'm always humbled by running while still working, and these stars come and trust uh, the process. And I think these guys want the experience that the wild, the great outdoors, gives us. So I love that. Super proud of this new season, and uh, Mark and Elon, ready for you. Next season. Aha! <laughs> You've thrown down the gauntlet now. And, and also, it's a message I'm for all of us. I'm not in the cage. Yeah, I know. Oh, you're <laughs> not. Like a, oh, dear. No, no. Be like, it's, everything, everything about it feels a bit weird. <laughs> well, it's the antithesis of what you do, because you're about getting out there and experiencing nature and wildlife. And, um, yeah, I go back to what I said before. Perhaps a cage isn't a bad idea for them, at least. Um, Bear, great to chat to you. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, we appreciate your views on all the subjects today. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. Lots of news, too, about global interest rates on our plates and U.S. stocks are in uncertain states. The S&P 500 lower for a fourth straight session after Fed Chair Jerome Powell's stern rate hike message before Congress Wednesday. Powell insisting once again that the Fed's inflation fight still has a way to go and that rates will need to head higher. The Bank of England responding to the ever-worsening inflation crisis in the United Kingdom, too, by hiking rates a greater than expected half a percentage point today. That's the 13th straight rate hike. And Norway and the Swiss Central Bank raising interest rates today too, as well as the Turkish Central Bank. Turkish officials hiking by a whopping six and a half percentage points to a rate of 15% in an effort to fight sky-high prices there. It was an expected, as we mentioned earlier, policy U-turn for both the Central Bank and President Erdogan. But officials were expected to raise rates a lot more, in fact. The Turkish lira currently up, providing support by more than 3%, the small bounce from recent all-time lows. Actually, that's the US dollar. My apologies. The Turkish lira is lower against the US dollar by just over 3%. And President Biden is about to greet Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi at the White House. Following the arrival ceremony, the two leaders will hold a bilateral meeting. They'll also hold a joint press conference, as we discussed earlier, before a state dinner later in the day. Prime Minister Modi is the only the third world leader to be honoured by a state visit since President Biden took office. And as you can see, those are live pictures from the White House there. 
That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. And I'll be right back with Connect the World. So don't move. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.